so we're going to make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As you guys head that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul has planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And as he planted the church there in Corinth, he then went about planting other churches. But now as he's gone on his way, he's received letters from the church in Corinth about issues that have arisen inside the church. And the first round of letters, or the first letter that he really addresses is from a lady named Chloe in the household of Chloe. And so he, he receives word from her about all the things that are taking place in the church. And really from chapter 1 up through chapter 6, he's essentially addressing the issues that Chloe has brought up to him, including uh, that of divisiveness. This is really what Paul attacks First, that there's division inside the church in Corinth. And then he transitioned from there to sexual immorality. You might recall the fun times of a guy who is sleeping with his stepmom. Uh, not a great situation that's happening there in the church in Corinth. And so from there, he transitions to legal battles that are happening within the church. They weren't settling disputes and arguments amongst themselves. They were instead taking them to the courts of the Gentiles to decide on. And so as he's addressed these items in the first six chapters, as we arrive now in chapter seven, we're going to see a transition because now he's going to address the issues that have been raised by the leaders inside the church. And so Paul spent six chapters not addressing the issues that were brought up by the leadership, but instead addressing the bigger problems. And really what he was doing is he was establishing a groundwork. And, but as we go through the final chapters of the book, this is really a, an outline of the different topics that Paul is going to hit on. But in each case, he's addressing an issue that's brought up to him by the leaders of the church in Corinth. And so as we arrive in chapter 7, you guys can see, welcome to Woodlawn Chapel this morning. We get to talk about uh, marriage, divorce, and slavery. And so thank you so much, Paul, for making this an easy topic this morning. But all this to say that inside the church, there's really this cultural debate happening. How do they handle interpersonal relationships? How do they handle relationships uh, inside the church, outside the church? And really what we find is Paul's encouragement to them is to be separate, to be sanctified, to be set apart in the way they handle themselves and the way they handle others. So that people on the outside would look into the church and go, wow, you're so different in how the world would typically handle these situations. And as we arrive here in chapter 7, in particular with this topic of marriage, please understand that the, the church was to be the bride of Christ. And so we were to be set apart. The way we were to settle our arguments, what Jesus would say is, this is how you'll know you're my disciples, in that you love one another, right? The love that they were to have for each other, their relationships were really to set them apart and to sanctify them. So all that to arrive us to chapter 7, Verse 1, and because we've got 40 verses to cover this morning, and I don't want uh, my wife to strangle me for leaving them in children's church for the next hour and a half, we're going to cover large blocks of text, and then we're going to go back and hit the highlights as we go through this this morning. So we'll start with these first nine verses. Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your own lack of self-control. Verse 6, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Verse 8, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so we begin this morning with the topic of marriage, or for those of you who grew up in my generation with the Princess Bride 
marriage. And so let's talk about marriage this morning. What Paul addresses in verses 1 and 2 is the advantages that he has as a man who has committed himself to celibacy. And really what he's going to drive at, and he's going to hit it only about 20 different times, is that it's better to be celibate, to not have yourself in a committed relationship, and instead to be committed to the Lord because you don't have anything holding you back from serving God. And so as Paul addresses this, though, it's important to pick up on what he notes in verse 7, is that this act of celibacy is a gift from God. That this is not for everyone. In fact, it's not for the majority of people, but it has to be a God-given gift. And as a side note, what I believe is that in large part, as we encourage or in fact impress upon people that they need to be celibate in order to fill certain roles, that if they're not called to that, it, it adds a layer of uh, risk there for sexual immorality. And so when we see immorality happening inside the church, in large part, it's because people have been put in a position to live a life of celibacy when they weren't called to that thing. And so it's too difficult to withstand. And so it, it adds all these difficulties when the gift has not been given by God. Now, verses 3 and 4, he says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. And so in these two verses, we see Paul communicating that as we get married and two become one flesh, that no longer is your uh, body, is your life really your own. You've committed to the other person. And so you've been joined together in the flesh, but what's even deeper than that, you've been joined together emotionally. And so both physically and emotionally, now the two are one. And so when one suffers or one is lacking affection, the other needs to come alongside in support. Now, verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for time. And now at this point in time, uh, every man is now going, Woohoo! Right? It's right there. It's in the book. But notice what Paul says is with consent that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer. I would tell you that of all the people I've spoken to, uh, marriage counseling, I have never one time had a couple sit with me and say, you know, uh, we would be more intimate with one another if not for all the fasting and all the prayer that we do. I've never actually had that situation. Maybe at some point I will have uh, that happen, but this is not typically the case. We go, we're going to withhold so that we can pray and fast together. But Paul, this is what he wants to make clear, is that except for this situation, you should not withhold because the result is that Satan will have an opportunity to get a foothold inside the relationship. We put ourselves in a position to be attracted by the enemy because of our own nature. And so, he says, do not withhold from one another. But I find an interesting link while I teased about prayer and fasting uh, in this, that there is a connection in spiritual intimacy that goes along with physical intimacy. That as you're married together and you're joined, you're not only joined spiritually and emotionally, but also physically all at the same time. And so, as the uh, sex life tends to be a barometer of the marriage, so does the prayer life. That if we want to be attracted to one another on a deeper level, there is no deeper attraction you can have than if you pray with your spouse. And so I want to encourage you guys uh, to pray with one another as a husband and a wife. What you'll find is you'll have a deeper connection than you've ever experienced before. Now, is it going to be awkward at first? Absolutely. It's going to be like the first kiss where you're like, I don't know, does my head go this way? Does it go that way? I'm not sure. You're probably going to bonk each other a few times. But as you work into that relationship, what you'll find is a tremendous connection. And the truth is, I firmly believe you cannot stay mad at someone that you pray for and with consistently. And so this is why I encourage my wife. I mess up a lot. So I'm like, let's pray together. Please, because you cannot stay in a spot of being angry with one another if you pray together and pray for each other. Now, Paul continues in verse 6. He says, But I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. 
This is the first time in this chapter what Paul is going to hit several times. He's going to mention that this is a word coming from Paul, not necessarily from Scripture. And so Paul is now going to give his opinion. Now it's a Holy Spirit-inspired opinion. He's got the Spirit of God in this spot, but you'll find a few different times he's going to make these transitions where I, Paul, say, or Scripture says. And so it's okay For us to share our opinions with each other, especially if we have experience. But again, make sure you've made that thing in prayer. And you've made a delineation between this is in the Bible or this is my opinion. This is what Paul is saying. This is my opinion in this manner. He says in verse 7a, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. And so the Apostle Paul is writing from a spot of being a single man. So he writes this letter to them as a man who is single. But I want to put a caveat on this because many people uh, do not know this or haven't studied this. And so I'm going to throw it out there that uh, very likely, if almost not certainly, the Apostle Paul was married at one time. If you go to Acts chapter 26, verse 10, Paul is sharing there in this spot his testimony. And what he shares is as he's going through his testimony in Acts 26, before he came to know the Lord, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 Jewish men that ruled over the Jewish religion. And they would vote on things. And in particular, what Paul is sharing there in Acts 26 is that he voted on the persecution of Christians, even having some of them put to death. But I mention that to say that you could not be a member of the Sanhedrin unless you were married, which means the Apostle Paul is a divorced man writing this. Now, we don't know if his wife died, I should say that, or if his wife left him. But I would think that if Paul's wife died, he probably would have shared that experience somewhere. And so we we don't know, but it's widely believed that Paul was married. And then after coming to know Christ, his wife didn't want to have anything to do with it. And she departed. She left him. Now, I camped out on that spot for a reason, because I feel like as a church, and I'm speaking globally over the last several centuries, uh, we have done a terrible job at shaming divorced people making people feel like they're less than because they've walked through that. Uh, Maybe even saying they couldn't serve in certain areas of the church because of, of a previous experience, a previous relationship. All that to say, the guy that wrote half your New Testament was a divorced guy. And when we say that you cannot or you can't serve in this certain way, what we're really doing is we are limiting the very power of God. All things are possible with him. And so when we arrive in 2 Corinthians 5:17 and he says, "Look, all things are new in Christ Jesus." That means even if you've been in a spot where you've had a marriage that didn't work out, you can be new in Christ Jesus. This is where Paul is coming from. Now, he continues at the end here of verse 7 to say, "But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, one in that manner. And so Paul was able to live a life of celibacy because he was gifted by God to live in this way. Now Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 19 in one of the weirdest passages in all of Jesus's teachings. So while we're all uncomfortable and things are kind of weird, we might as well go here too. Matthew chapter 19 verse 12, Jesus says, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so what Jesus taught is that there are some people that were just born and they did not have a sex drive. There was not a desire to have an intimate relationship with someone. And what Jesus is communicating is, that's okay. That's okay. You were born this way to commit yourself to the Lord if this is the spot that you're in. Secondly, he says there are people who have been made eunuchs by men. Remember that throughout history, kings would often take especially people in their cabinet and they would make them eunuchs. Likely Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were elevated in Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet were made eunuchs by Nebuchadnezzar. And so there are those who are made that way by men. But then this last group is where Paul would fall, that there are those who have been made eunuchs, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. 
And so if you're gifted in that way, what Paul is saying is this is a gift from God to be able to be a eunuch, to be celibate so that he can fully pursue Jesus. So that he's not tied down to anything going on back home, but he can go all in. Now, this is not, again, for everyone, which is what Paul's going to mention here in verse 9. He says, if they cannot exercise self-control, you don't have to raise your hand, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is obviously not the calling for everyone, otherwise we wouldn't have any church. We wouldn't be fruitful and multiplying. And so what he says is, if this is not you, if you don't have the gift, marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, one of the greatest examples we see in the Old Testament of this is in the life of Abraham. You might remember Abraham, he and his wife Sarah couldn't have children. God gave him then the son of promise, Isaac, and at the ripe age of 100, he and Sarah give birth to Isaac. She's 90. Now, if you fast forward through the story, uh, eventually Sarah dies when Abraham is at the age of 137. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 25, verse 1, uh, Abraham remarries, marries a lady named Keturah. Why? Because better to marry than to burn with passion. I mean, this dude's 137 years old. They got six more kids. Look, it's in the book. Boys will be boys, right? So it's better to marry than to burn with passion, even at 137. Now, before I get myself in more trouble, let's go to verse 10. Now, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? As I was reading and studying this this week, I saw it that marriage is a lot like a violin. That just because the music stops doesn't mean the strings aren't still attached. And so we see this attachment that happens as two become one flesh. And what you know about flesh being joined together is for it to be taken apart, there is tearing. There is a removal that is painful. It, it hurts. So as Paul is communicating this, he's saying, look, it's better to not tear the flesh, to not rip this apart. God loves us enough to not want us to have to go through this. But then in verses 11 through 13, he goes on to talk about that if you happen to find yourself in a spot of divorce and you have to go, wait a minute, Paul said it's better not to divorce, but then he talks about divorce. Why? Well, because Paul's being practical. <laughs> He's being realistic. He knows that there are going to be situations that come up just like this. Now, Jesus was pressed again back in Matthew 19 about the topic of divorce. And as he was uh, approached by the Pharisees in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate." And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Verse 8, And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> like that, that sounds really hard. But as Jesus is being cornered on the topic, remember what's happening culturally in this spot. It's always best to take the text in its context. That these Pharisees have approached Jesus trying to trap him on this very topic. And back in the law of Moses, there was a decree that Moses wrote down that a man could go and issue a certificate of divorce to his wife if she was found unclean. Now, you fast forward all these years later, some 1,500 years, and what does man do? But they twist what was written in Scripture. And so, men would begin to issue a certificate of divorce for uncleanness based upon whatever they thought was unclean. And so, if, uh, honey, I ordered over easy eggs, these are over medium. You are clearly unclean. Whoop, divorced. Uh, honey, you burnt the toast. Whoop, divorced. Honey, you put on a few pounds Time to issue a certificate of divorce. And so for all these reasons that God had never intended because of the hardness of their heart, men were issuing certificates of divorce to their wives when there was no cause. Now, this also led to another cultural issue because in this day that Jesus says this, women could not just go out and get a job. There weren't places for them to be able to work and provide for themselves. So what's happened at, as Jesus is commenting on this is there is a whole group of people that are now essentially widowed, no longer considered a marriage material, and they're on the poverty line. They've got no way to provide for themselves. So what was taking place was despicable, and this is what Jesus is addressing. It was a cultural issue as much as anything else, but his teaching was very direct. Now, it's led some as they read this, to say, so the only reason that you can file for divorce is because of sexual morality. And the question would come up, because we're not avoiding difficult topics, uh, what about abuse? What about physical abuse, uh, verbal abuse, mental abuse? Where does that land here in Scripture? And the truth is, Scripture doesn't mention it. But just because Scripture doesn't mention it doesn't mean that I can't uh, pull an Apostle Paul and say, Here's what I'm going to give you from my vantage point. That if God, as a father, loves us like children, who among us as fathers would look at our child in a situation of physical or mental or verbal abuse and say, stay in that thing, endure that thing? Not a one of us as dads or moms would stand aside and allow that to happen. And so I would submit to you that in this day, it wasn't a cultural issue for them, but for us, it most certainly is. And so, in the case of sexual immorality or verbal or physical or mental abuse, uh, I believe that we have a very clear scriptural reason why divorce can take place. Now, all that to say, it doesn't make it not incredibly painful. Now, verse 14, as Paul continues here, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. So does that mean if you stick with a husband or a wife who doesn't believe, and you believe that they're now able to go to heaven? And the answer would be no. That this sanctification he's talking about means your relationship will be set apart. It means for your children, there will be in a household where there's still at least some Jesus going on. In spite of whatever is happening in your marital relationship, if you stick with that thing, there is at least some kind of Holy Spirit power taking place in that relationship. And you can be a light for someone else because you're not the only one suffering in that spot. And so as you endure that relationship and others see what you're going through, you become a tremendous encouragement and you become a prayer warrior in that spot. As we continue there in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Now the Apostle Paul is likely writing about his own experience. If the one that does not believe departs, let them depart. You're no longer under bondage. You're no longer under the marriage commitment. You're free to go and remarry or to stay, as Paul's going to say over and over again, stay as he is. 
Uh, but for that person, as Paul's writing from this spot of personal experience, what you need to know here in verse 15, but God has called us to peace. Please understand that, that is the as the world feels like anything but peaceful, if you're in one of those situations, as it feels like complete uproar and tumultuousness, Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so for the one who is in the middle of that storm, the encouragement is keep your mind stayed on God. Focus on him, press into him in the middle of that storm. Now, verse 16, he wraps up this section by saying, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This is encouragement to stick this thing out, to gut it out in the hard times, because you don't know if by praying for him or praying for her that you will not see salvation happen in that situation. One of the best things I've heard written about this is that for you husbands or wives that are in this spot, is to get on your knees and let God wipe them out. I mean, you don't have to get up in the grill of that guy. Just get on your knees and say, Lord, knock them out. Holy Spirit, come overwhelm them in that spot and allow Jesus to do the work, praying for their salvation. You never know. You might just see it come to pass. Now, continuing in verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. And so Paul is now writing in this section about this mindset that we can often get, and that's the grass is greener. So Paul's trying to encourage them that, look, if you're married, don't desire to be unmarried. If you're unmarried, don't desire to be married. Don't get to looking at what everyone else has and in everybody else's situation and only desire that in your life, but instead to be content. And so if you're circumcised or who he's referring to is the Jews, be the best Jesus-loving Jew you can be. And if you're a Gentile, be the best Jesus-loving Gentile you can be. But here's the thing. It's not that we should try to be someone that we're not. That's what he's communicating. Be who you are. Be in the spot that he has you and just love Jesus with every fiber of your being. Now, he continues in verse 21 through 22, speaking of slavery. And this, for us, given our uh, country's history with slavery, makes us uncomfortable. But remember, in the Roman Empire, uh, 50% of the people that would have been in the population were slaves. And so inside this church group, there were some that were slaves. There were some that were slave owners. There were some that were intentionally in a spot of servitude. And so he's reading this out to a mixed multitude and probably even times where someone would get up to share that was a slave sharing to people that were slave owners. But what Paul is communicating is, if you're a slave, you're free in Christ. And if you think you're free, you're actually a slave in Christ. And so he's communicated this reality. And, the, and what it really boils down to is, it's not what you're doing. We get so worked out about what we're doing. It's really all about who you're serving. As the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, he hits on this topic similarly. He says in verse 22, bond servants... Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And so this is that encouragement of paying attention to who you're actually serving in whatever spot we find ourselves in. We are serving Christ. We are working for him in that spot. Back to verse 23, where Paul says, You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men, brethren. Let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So you were bought with a price. And the price was the precious blood of Jesus. He gave everything for you and I. And so as he gave everything, you were bought at a very expensive cost. Don't cheapen it. And now we have the opportunity. We get to become bondservants of Christ. What Paul would address in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, as he writes to the Romans there, he says, I, Paul, a bondservant to Jesus Christ. This is how he viewed himself. Now, we don't understand that terminology, but what a bondservant was is that in that day, if you were a slave underneath a master, uh, the master could remove the requirements of your slavery from you, the requirements of your servanthood from you. And so you can imagine a situation where you're indebted to a master, and then he comes along and says, you are now free. And for the free will bondservant, what would happen is they would look at their life, what all has transpired, and they would say, man, my, my Adonai, my master's a good master. He's taken care of me. He's provided food and shelter. He's protected my family. He's a good master. I am going to intentionally now go into servitude. I'm going to become a free will bond servant to that master because he's been so good to me. And this is what Paul is saying here, is that we have the opportunity to become free will bond servants to Christ Jesus. For the bond servant, they would then take them away and they would take their ear and place it upon a wood post and drive a nail through their ear to pierce the skin, to open the ear and place an, an earring in it so that all would know that they were a free will bond servant. And so we have now Jesus as our master who's taken away all of the requirements of our servitude. And we have the opportunity to lay our will aside and say, I'm willing to be a free will bondservant. And as an example for us, he laid himself down on the post to be pierced for us. He made himself a free will bondservant to the Father. And we have him as an example. What did he say there in the garden in Luke 22:42? But not my will be done, but thy will be done. Laying his will aside for the will of the Father. And so this is our example. And what you'll find is if you're willing to do that, to be a free will bondservant to Adonai, it is the most free, it's the most freeing thing you've ever experienced. No longer does it have to be a concern about what about this and what about that and making five-year plans and 10-year plans and all the things that we get ourselves so wrapped up in. What he is saying is be a free will bondservant and see what I won't do with your life. Be good in the spot that you're in. Serve me in the spot that you're in. Now we continue. Verse 25. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one who the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. He's talking about the persecution that's happening to the church. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh but I would spare you. Verse 29, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the, world, for the form of this world is passing away. Verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, 
how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And so Paul, once again, is going to give us his spirit-guided opinion on the topic of marriage. And what he says in verses 25 and 26 is that being single gives you more time to devote for the kingdom. That's about the fifth time Paul's driven that nail down into the wood for us. Thank you, Paul. But what he also says in verse 27 is that if you're bound to a wife, if you're in a situation where you're married, don't seek to be single. If you're in a situation where you're single, don't seek to be married. Don't seek to be married because the point is God is aware of your situation. He's not surprised at the spot you're in. And so stop striving to change and to get out of that spot. Verse 28, he says, if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. And so Paul, now giving us a tremendous encouragement, if you're married, he says, look, if you uh, seek to get married or if you're married, uh, you're going to have some trouble. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. And so uh, thank you for that reality. But what he's communicating is we take two imperfect people who have their own likes and dislikes and things that they enjoy and don't enjoy and discussion points, and you put them together, there's bound to be some type of friction. And so the good news is we shouldn't be surprised by struggles that we have in marriage while two become one. He goes on to say in verse 29, but I say then, brethren, the time is short. So now he's going to instruct them on how we are to live in the present day. We are to live in a spot where life is short. And the truth is, we all know it. Like, we're not surprised that life is short. We know it. We see it. We often don't want to think about it. We, we want to pretend like this isn't the case. Paul's encouraging them to live like life is short. Don't be afraid to go hard for Jesus. Don't be afraid to share about your faith because life is short. And yet what happens? Why don't we do it? Why don't we live like this? And inside these verses, he gives three different reasons why we pull up short from going hard for Jesus. The first there at the end of verse 29 is that we seek relationships more than we seek God. That in our culture, in our society, there is such a push to go out and find the one. Find the soulmate, right? And some of you, that's been a pursuit to find the one that is meant for me to a soulmate. Some of you are married and you're like, I'm still looking for my soulmate. I don't know if this is the one, right? So there's this whole push and desire to go and find the one for you. The problem is, is it's, it's backwards. What Matthew 6.33 says is, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things are added unto you. We spend our time seeking after the relationships and wanting it to be just perfect, and we forget uh, that that's all the other stuff. Our, our command from the Lord is to seek him first, to seek his righteousness, and then trust him that he's going to take care of all these other things. And so our pursuit of relationship makes it difficult for us to go hard for Jesus. Secondly, there in verse 30, he says at the beginning of this verse, those who weep should be as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And so in this section, he's saying we are held back by our own emotions. Our emotional state holds us back from going hard for Jesus. I don't know about you, but my emotional state is like a roller coaster. I mean, I'm good one minute, and the next minute I'm down, right? But for each of us, we have a tendency to struggle with eye disease. And I'm not talking about itchy, watery, hay fever eyes. I'm talking about capital letter I. We tend to, because we're selfish creatures, think about ourselves a lot. I care about and think about me way more than I think about anybody else. I love me some me. And I'm concerned about me. I'm worried about me. But the problem is, is I emotionally go up and down and I focus all on me and I focus all on myself is that I find myself in a place of depression. And then as I'm depressed, I think even more about me. And I drive myself all the way down into the ground to the point where I am of no use for the kingdom. It's continually depressing. What Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse, I'll start in verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you and do not curse. 
And then here in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And so Paul's recommendation on how we're to handle our own emotions is to weep with those who weep and to laugh with those who laugh, to come alongside one another. And so the, the way to get out of this situation of eye disease is to come alongside someone else and invest in them. And so as they're sharing something hard, you weep with them. When they're sharing something funny, I mean, throw your head back and laugh. I mean, Wah-ha! that's, I mean, you know, laugh with them. Connect with them in that way. And what you'll find is if you do that, the eye disease, the itchy watery, it'll clear up. It begins to get better after a short period of time when we focus on others and get our eyes off our own situation. Now, the final thing he says here at the end of verse 30, he said that those who buy should be as those who did not possess and those who use this world as not misusing it for the form of the world is passing away. The third thing that gets in the way of us going hard for Jesus is our own possessions. That we let temporary possessions keep us from eternal investment. We got so much stuff, man. It bogs us down and locks us up and binds us. And we get all pent up about giving to the Lord. But when we decide to give back to Him, and by the way, we've already hit on marriage, divorce, and slavery. We might as well hit on giving while we're at it. The full meal deal. Welcome in. Good news is we don't have to worry about parking problems after this. There'll be plenty of room. But, but this is the reality. We struggle with giving, but what we're really giving away when we give to Him is we're giving away selfishness. We're giving away stinginess. We're giving away control. And, and in the words of one of the great worship bands, of the late 1970s and early 80s, we're called to hold on loosely and don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. Right? We're called to hold on loosely and not let go. We cling so tight that we turn around and lose control. Thank you, 38 Special. Verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord, but he who is unmarried cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And so Paul's encouragement here is to be satisfied in the state that you are in and with his calling on your life. Now, verse 34, he continues as we head down the home stretch. He says, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. Thank you, Paul. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it, it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In verse 40, she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, but I think I also have the Spirit of God. So Paul wants to make it clear where he is writing from. So his final thoughts as we close up this chapter are this, that a single female, a single woman, has the ability to serve the Lord more freely than one who is bound to the wishes and the desires of her husband if she's been gifted to be in this spot. And for those who have been gifted, and it truly is a gift to be in this spot, uh, what I think about 
here in verse 35 is back to the story of Anna in the book of Luke. And in Luke chapter 2, the story of Anna goes like this, that she was married for seven years and her husband died. She's now an 84-year-old woman. She's been a widow for a long, long time. And she has committed herself to seek the Lord. Day in and day out, she's there in the temple. She's just seeking after God. And you know, not every day was probably a great day for Hannah. There were some days where it was probably tearful, other days where it was laughter, but she did not stop from seeking the Lord. This was her attention. It was turned on him. And in verse 37, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day and coming in that instant. She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who look for redemption in Jerusalem. What happened is as Anna committed herself to the Lord, as she pressed in to seek after him, she got to see Jesus. Here's baby Jesus right there. Mary and Joseph in the temple. And this 84-year-old woman who'd been seeking after the Lord, she got to see the revelation of the Christ. I share that to say that her attention, her focus was on him. And so if you're in a spot where you're not married, you're not with husband, maybe you've been widowed for a long time, the encouragement here is to focus on him. Pray and walk with Jesus. Be wed to him. And as you seek after him, the promise of the Lord is to draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And so you have this encouragement there in the spot that you're in. Now, in verses 36 through 38, we see this uh, direction being given by Paul specifically for how fathers are to handle their daughters in their house. He's speaking of virgins in this way. He's talking about fathers giving their daughters in marriage. And the encouragement here from Paul is is simply this, be involved. (laughs) For, for us as dads, often we want to take a step back and let them figure it out. I don't want to overstep my bounds. And the encouragement here by Paul is to get involved. I mean, you're likely going to have to be stuck with that dude for a long time. So you better get involved in that relationship. And so this is the encouragement by Paul because as fathers and as mothers, we want to set our kids up for success. So it's okay to get involved to make sure we do that in relationships for our children. Now, finally, so we're finally now at that spot. Many of you are breathing a sigh of relief. Verse 39 and 40, Paul is going to give encouragement for a wife who is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but once he's passed away, it's okay to be remarried or to stay in that spot. And once again, for the final time, Paul's going to say it's better to remain as you are. So thank you, Paul, for driving that one home. All that to say, as we read through this chapter, we can get the idea that Paul is against marriage, that he is not pro-marriage. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writing here a more... Uh, explicit discourse on marriage. What he says just in a few verses, verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be made holy and without blemish. I want you to understand that in the Christian walk, what Paul is explaining is that marriage is the very picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church, for Jesus and his bride. And so it's not a perfect picture. As we muddle our way through it, it's anything but perfect. But the encouragement is to seek him, to pray that your relationship be sanctified, because as less and less people come to church, here's the reality. When we go out into the public, we're lots of times the only Jesus you're ever going to see. And so how I handle my relationship with my wife and how she handles me in my house and out of my house, it speaks volumes about the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's just that important. And for the one who is single in this spot, the encouragement here is to be wed to Jesus. He is your groom. He is the one that you seek. Seek after him and allow him to 
point you and direct you where he'd have your relationship go. It's an exciting relationship to enter into where he is your husband. Male or female, this is a spot you can come to him and say, Lord, I want you to just direct me. I'm seeking you and your righteousness and point me where you'd have me to go. All that to say, as we wrap up, whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, regardless of the spot you're in, here's the words that Paul shared with Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6. And I would encourage you to underline this, highlight this, double highlight it in your Bible. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Regardless of the spot he has you in, Understand the God of the universe is aware of your situation. And to pursue godliness and to be content with that spot, there's no amount of money, there's not enough commas or zeros you can put on that kind of gain. Lord, I trust you in this spot. I trust if you want to change my state, if you want to change my situation, you're a big enough God to do that. But for right now, I'm just going to worship you in this spot that I'm in. Let there be no more shame or guilt or regret in any one of these positions because God knows right where you're at. And godliness with contentment is great gain. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for 1 Corinthians chapter 7. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that we get to be real. Thank you that we get a journey through Scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If not, I might not have been brave enough to tackle that one. And so I thank you for being bigger than all that. I thank you for giving us words that we need to hear, Lord. I thank you for giving us encouragement and direction. Father, I want to pray right now for shame and for guilt and regret and all the things inside our current relationships and those of the past, they didn't work out like we thought they were going to. But Father, you died for that. You cleansed that. You gave yourself for that. Lord, I pray for the longing that goes on in our hearts to be in a different spot than what we're in. How we are a a fickle bunch. We don't want to stay put in the position you have us. Lord, help us to be godly and then to be content knowing that if you want to change our situation at any point in time, you are big enough to change it. Lord, help us to be the richest people we know because we are godly with contentment. Father, I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name.